and there's a little bit of judgment mixed in with that in some ways. We'll look at that eventually. But uh, back to Micah 4 then. Would somebody read chapter or verses 1 through 5? Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills. The people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his path. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. <coughs> but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So... In the last days, you know, after this judgment takes place, God's going to change things. And it's going to be a wonderful picture of the things that are going to happen after this. After these things, the mountain of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains raised above the hills. What do you think about a mountain range? And you've got one particular mountain in that range that suddenly starts growing, starts being raised up, and starts towering above those other mountains. That's the picture you've got. Which mountain is it that's raised up? Yes, God's mountain was raised up. The next thing you see in this picture is a little odd. End of verse 1. What is it? people are flowing to it. Yes, the people are flowing, streaming to this mountain. What's odd about that? (laughs) Yeah, they're flowing up to this highest mountain. It's against gravity. Um, And so that's just kind of an odd way to see that. shows the tremendous attractive power of this mountain. And, And what he's really talking about is that in the last days, Jesus would be crowned as king. He would be exalted above all the other kings, and peoples would flow to him. It's kind of like Acts chapter 2. What did Peter preach in Acts chapter 2? Jesus is Lord and Christ. Exactly. The mountain has been raised up. And what happened when he preached it? The people flowed up. Yeah, people from all different places flowed up to the mountain, and that was just the beginning on that day. Now, these people who flow up to the mountain are very interesting people. And uh, they're the kind of people we want to be. And so uh, sometimes I preach a sermon on this passage, and it's uh, very just the same as Isaiah 2. And, uh, you know, I talk about the characteristics of mountain people. You know, we need to be one of the mountain people. <laughs> and uh, the first characteristic of the mountain people is they go to the mountain. <laughs> they are attracted to Jesus, and they go uphill if necessary to get there. You know, they come to Jesus. But there are some other things you read in this section that identify the characteristics of mountain people. What else do you see? 
They want to learn. They, they come to the mountain that he may teach us his ways. It's exactly right. You know, if you're one of God's people, you want to know his ways. You're eager to listen and learn what he wants. And what else do you see about mountain people here? Walk in his path, they follow him. Yes! They want to learn in order to do what he says. These are not just people who want to know so they can say they know. They are committed to actually following the will of God as they learn it. They want to walk in his path to do his will. What else do you see about these people? Yes. They tell other people to come and go to the mountain too. They're evangelistic. Which is really powerful. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> the unnatural reluctance we have to talk about the Lord. It, it, I've used this uh, before. It's, it's true to a very great extent. In Brazil, you know, almost all the Christians talk about the Lord to people around them. A lot. Some of them are kind of weak. They don't come to church very often. But they talk about the Lord to everybody they're around. We're kind of the opposite. You know, we, we go to church, you know, all the time. Some of us are kind of weak. We don't talk about the Lord very much. To them, I mean, the most natural, obvious, fundamental thing is you tell everybody about the Lord. Now, if you're weak, you're not very committed, you're not very disciplined, you don't do very well with things like going to church and so forth, but they're always talking about the Lord. Even the weakest ones do that. It's like, and that makes sense. That's the thing you would do. If, if you know, I don't know, if, if there was some super deal on something that was important. I don't know. You know, if you could, if there's this place that was running this incredible special on really neat cars, you know, I don't know, some kind of a, you know, repo deal or some kind of a lease deal or whatever, I mean, you could get really nice, you know, cars that young people would like for good prices, and they were in great shape. Would you tell anybody? <laughs> I want all the cars. <laughs> well, I see you got plenty. Yeah, you want to share that news. Not really all that ultimately good news, but, you know, we think it was, because in this life, it might be cool. We got something so much better. Why wouldn't we want to talk about it? Why wouldn't we want to tell it? Come here to the mountain too. Let's get out there. Let's be where he is. It's just like, what, what, do we not see it as good news? You know, we ought to want to share. So, these mountain people, they, they come to the mountain. They invite other people to come. They come to learn and to walk. And, verse 3, they're people of peace. They, they, they aren't <laughs> training for war anymore. They don't fight war anymore. They don't even have instruments of war. They have weapons anymore. They turn them into agricultural implements. So their hearts are changed toward peace. These are the characteristics of the mountain people. 
And uh, if you stop and think about those things, there's a lot of good things to learn from those. Now, in verse 4, where are they? Does that remind you of anything? Jonah. Yes. When he was in the shade. When he was in the shade. Yeah. Reminds you of anything else? <laughs> First Kings 4, Solomon Drew. Yes. First Kings 4.25. No, it's always a bad question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, First Kings 4.25. So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. First Kings 4.25. Uh, that sort of becomes the picture of the ideal period of peace and prosperity. You know, Solomon's reign was kind of the height of Israel's glory. They were at peace, they were prosperous, things were going well, everybody was under his vine and his fig tree. And so this is again a picture in Micah of prosperity and blessing, things are going well. Um, and even though the peoples walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of our, the Lord our God uh, for a little while. You really see another characteristic of the mountain people here, don't you? How long do they follow the Lord? Yeah. The, you know, we are too quick to give up and to quit. This is commitment. This is forever and ever. They continue to serve the Lord. Where else can we go? There's no, there's no future in anything else. Mm-hmm. Comments and questions. Sure. I think it's interesting to see that talking about the exact opposite of what the people have been doing in the first three chapters. They have not wanted to hear his law. They told the prophets to be quiet. They have asked for prophets to tell them the wrong thing so they wouldn't have to deal with his law. So not only did they not want to hear it, but they would never follow them only everyone falls forever in as themselves. So I see this as almost a complete contrast with the first three, first three chapters. Seeing exact opposite of what people should do it, and the Lord is wanting them to do opposite of what they are doing in repentance. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes, Ryan. It seems like really often we look for ways to get out of commitment instead of seeing how we can hold to it. Yeah. You know, You'd rather find loopholes than really fulfill the Lord's will. Good point. <laughs> Other comments? There's the interesting picture that you've seen through the whole book. The people who are acting up and misbehaving and their consequences of their actions and not listening to God's negative message. And then there's these people who listen to the negative message and they're blessed and they're having a good life. And these people are seeking after everything that they want the people who just listen to God and have all that without all the extra. You know, they didn't have to steal it. They didn't have to kill somebody to get good things. God took care of them. Definitely. So much better to follow the Lord. The long term is so much better. You have true peace and true security only in the Lord. Other thoughts? Okay. Six to eight. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. 
So the Lord will reign over them in the Mount Zion, for now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Look what God's going to do for them. Who is he going to bring together? The lame and the outcast. Yes. God works so well with the most unlikely prospects. We're in Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And, uh, you know, the lame, the outcast, the afflicted, those who were really down and out, he takes and makes a remnant. He makes them a strong nation. He reigns over them. Look at what God can do with people who have nothing in and of themselves to amount to anything. Now he can make them strong, powerful people. And uh, he will actually give them back, in verse 8, the former dominion. Now, when he talks to them about restoring the former former dominion, try saying that five times fast, what is that talking about? What's the former dominion? I think so. That reference back especially to David in this case. The whole idea of that promise to David that his kingdom would endure forever. Well, then have to be around. Uh, you know, for a while after God brought them into judgment, but he brings it back in Jesus and blesses them. Uh, Amos talked about how he would rebuild the tabernacle of David that had fallen down. And James quotes that in Acts 15 as applying today in Christ. So he's just going to make something out of them through the Messiah. Something wonderful out of people who were very unlikely prospects. Comments and questions through verse 8. Think about uh, the idea of God using mountain people. You know, we usually think of mountain people as you know, mums or you know, these poor old people who live in the mountains. But the th- but the thing is, it, it I think that figure is important because it shows you don't have to be the most talented, the most influential to be diligent servants of God. Because you see uh, how these people are used as an example of those who serve God. And they're not considered, you know, the high up or whatever. And so we need to remember that we don't need that, to think we're, you know, whatever to be able to serve God. That may, on the other hand, be more our culture that would think of that as mountain people. I suspect, in general, mountains were considered to be, you know, the, the more secure territory. I know the Edomites prided themselves in living in the rocks and crags <coughs> and mountains. So it may just be more our thing about that. But, uh, but yeah, certainly God make something out of these people that had so little to offer. <coughs> yes? Do you have another scripture reference where uh, that was promised to David? Yeah. It's in Second Samuel 7 and First Chronicles 17. Other questions? Patrick? You made the comment that uh, the Lord is so good to us and we have so little to offer. And it makes me think, what if, what if we looked at that and took that 
and we treated other people the same way. What if we could look at look at all the wickedness that the people have committed and see how the Lord is still willing to forgive them on their offenses? Ninety percent of all the problems in the church today would be solved in a day if we could have that attitude. Uh, and I, I think we need to pay a lot more attention to that. Good point. We need to have the same attitude toward people God does, and certainly God's able to take people who spiritually are nothing and make something out of them. God's able to take people who, you know, have nothing to offer in terms of status and, you know, ability and things like that and make something out of them. In fact, you just look at the kind of people that God uses throughout the Bible. And in every sense, they have nothing to offer. And, and you might think about this. You know, one of the things that I noticed, especially in a couple of contexts in Brazil, but really I wonder if we're that much different. There were, uh, when, I, when I lived there, in the church I was in, there were four people that came from a, uh, a church that essentially was not following was not following the Bible, even though there were some things that were right about it. But one of the things in the church they were a part of, it was a very evangelistic, fast-growing church. But what they were really, really pushing was evangelism and conversion of what they called sharp people. You wanted sharp people. Young, educated, capable, talented people. And, and there was one man who was in the group with us, finally. He said that he had brought some lower class people with him to one of the Bible studies. And they were also pretty dark skinned, as he was, but he was well educated and so forth. And, and, and the leaders came up to him and said, this is not the kind of people you need to bring. Which infuriated him, and rightly so. We would never say that. But I wonder how often we are more inclined to be encouraging and accepting and helpful to the kind of people that we like or that we feel like have a lot to offer. And, you know, things like that. I mean, when, when God makes something out of people, he takes them with unlikely people. You know, God chose the apostles. You know, he didn't choose the doctors and the lawyers and the college presidents. He chose the fishermen and the tax collectors and the terrorists. You know, it's just not exactly the kind of people you think would make a great set of representatives to carry on your mission after you're dead. But Jesus can make something out of us. We need to work with the people who are willing to work. And we, we think, you know, this person's kind of slow man. You know, they're not very, they're not very sharp. You know, they, they, they don't read very well. I, you know, I don't have time to smile like this. You know, or, or this person is kind of dull. You know, I don't really like being around them. They're really quiet. Or, or they're just really kind of boring. Or whatever. Do you really think that God cares about that? I expect nobody's very exciting to God. <laughs> you know? And uh, nobody's got a whole lot of status to offer him. You know, what if we were more eager to assemble the lame and gather the outcasts 
even those he'd afflict and make something out of it. I mean, we just need to preach the gospel all. And and those who are receptive, may we have the same heart toward them that God does. Comments? Sure. Sure. Reminds me so much of Isaiah 53. Talking about what the, the one person who came to this world that had every reason to have a reputation made himself of no reputation. He had a reputation. There's nothing that we could desire in him. And that's what the Lord used to bring about salvation. The idea of it is why have a reputation? We've got nothing to have a reputation about. And the one person that did have the right, full and entire right to have a reputation of the Lord gave it up for our salvation. Amen. Good point. Yes. I can't help but think of the passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says the foolishness of God is wiser than men. You see God making an army out of the people. He's making an army. He says, I'm going to take the guys who can't walk, the guys who are too poor to buy weapons, and the people who are injured. And we're going to go off. This is what I'm going to take. And we stop and we look and we say, we want the smart people in our congregation. We want the people with money who can, so we can do things. Who was Jesus? He was the guy, one of the apostles, when they said, come see this man, he said, can anything good come from there? He was the guy from the hillbilly region of Judea that nobody cared about. And that's who God made his son, and who was the savior of the world. And we sit and we look and we say, I want people who are good looking, I want this. I sometimes wonder if when we go to church, we would have taken Jesus with us, because of who he was. In Brazil, again, I heard again this time, is amazing to me. And some churches that uh, would would not no longer be following the Bible pattern who have a number of missionaries in, in Brazil. Again, I was hearing about some of the philosophy of some of them. I've heard directly from some of them myself. Uh, you reach out to the rich and influential. And that's the ones you try to work with. Because they can reach down to the poor people, but the poor people can't reach up to the rich. You're thinking, Jesus hadn't heard of that evangelistic technique. <laughs> you know, poor guy, what would have happened if he had? Just amazing to me. The kinds of things we come up with in total ignorance of what the Bible says. You know, it's fine. God's words for everybody. And, and if there's a rich person, or if there's an influential person who's willing to humble themselves in terms of God, praise God. And let's help that person. But if there is a nobody who's poor and, 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 and not very uh, capable and talented, praise God, and God's just as honored by that person he is by the other. Other comments? Biblically speaking, uh, looking at the New Testament, some of the most work that we see done by one individual is the Apostle Paul and so far as evangelism. And yes, he was a Pharisee and had report among his brethren, but once he lost that, what did he have? He was a nobody. He had nothing. He had nothing to offer. It said he wasn't elegant in speech. He, it said that he had adorned in the flesh. And so he had every reason to believe that he was totally inadequate and insufficient for the job. And the truth is he was. Yes, absolutely, we all are. <laughs> and he was able to have the honor of preaching the gospel to the Praetorian God. He was able to take the gospel to Rome and have opportunities 
far greater than what most have ever seen. And it was because of his simplicity. It was because of his reliance on the Lord. And if we get caught up on, well, we can look outwardly and say, well, this person is good enough to uh, be taught. Well, let's look at ourselves. Are we good enough to teach it? Absolutely not. Who is good enough? The Lord. And everything else, after you have that mentality, everything else falls in place. Like. Uh, I will go on with the year slowly. When Jesus and his parents went down to Jerusalem and they, when they went back, uh, when they noticed he wasn't there, they found him uh, asking questions to the teachers and answering their questions. And he was just a kid. There are probably people that a lot of people are Yeah, good point. That's kind of what they said to his brothers. Like, why you come down here? You know, you come down just to watch the battle. You're just a kid. What can you do? Good thing he hadn't come down just to watch the battle as there wasn't much of that going on. <laughs> but, but if somebody relies on God, it doesn't make a difference how old they are, how, ta- how talent they are, how talent they are, or anything, because because God doesn't need those things. It's not us; it's the Lord. And once we see that, and humble ourselves. The problem is when we start relying on ourselves, and we start thinking, you know, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I bet the Lord's really proud to have me. Then that's a problem, and the Lord can't use us. It's pretty bad if the Creator needs us created. That's exactly right. Alright, look at the next section. <clears throat> Verse 9 to 13. Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished? The agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Ride and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted, and let our eyes glow over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and press, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hooks I will make bronze, and you may pulverize, pulverize many peoples, that they may devote the, to the Lord their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Okay, very good. Um, you've got this section right now. Well, you have contrast between now and the blessings in the future. You've really got three sets of these here and in this next section. So in in and, and each of the each of them starts with now. Four nine you've got now, four eleven and now, and five one you've got now. So now four nine, what were they doing? Crying. 
They were crying out in pain. How are they feeling? Like a woman in labor? I understand that is not the world's most pleasant experience. You know, you've had that? Uh, you know, very painful. And in the Bible, that's almost used as a symbol, the most intense pain possible. But there's a thing about the pains, the birth pains, the, birth, the pains of childbirth. And that is that it's pain that leads to a very positive result. And so these pains of childbirth lead to the blessing. She's writhing and laboring to give birth. And, 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 and in this, you know, it's, it's just terrible. The, the expel, they're expelled and they go to Babylon, which is where Judah ended up. And so it's just a really painful, agonizing experience. But when in Babylon, in the agony, in the pain, what was God going to do with them? Rescue them. Redeem from the, them from the hand of their enemies and bless them. So the now is bad, but it's going to lead to a good future. The, the future he's talking about is primarily in Christ. You know, so now they're like a woman in childbirth in pain. They're being cast out of their land, but, but God will rescue them and redeem them. That's the, then, the now and the then in verses 9 and 10. And then, in verse 11, And now, many nations have been assembled against you. Does that remind you of anything earlier in the chapter? Yes, verses 1 and 2. The nations were coming up to the mountain. Now the nations are coming up against God's people. And uh, it's kind of like these are the nations don't come to the mountain. <laughs> they come up to surround God's people to destroy them. And uh, they're they're gloating over Zion. They're licking their chops. They're ready to destroy God's people. But, verse 12, what? And they didn't realize it. (laughs) You know, so often, God causes what we do, what man does, to backfire. It's exactly what happens here. They come up to get their, you know, hands on Jerusalem, to destroy God's people, uh, because they have a compelling need to destroy anything that rebukes them. But, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His purpose, for He has gathered them like she's to the threshing floor. The fact of the matter is, they're coming up. They thought was destroyed Jerusalem. They're, this is actually God getting them together so He can wipe them out. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, and devote their unjust gain to the Lord. So they become the unwitting tools of their own destruction. They're going to come up, and God's going to turn his people into people who have iron horn and bronze hooves, and they're going to be pulverized. Um, It reminds me so much of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is talking about how the wisdom of the world is so um, unwise that you just don't understand. And, 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 and the world wanted to destroy the influence of Jesus. 
And so he says, we speak God's wisdom. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 7. We speak God's wisdom and the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now think about that. If the world rulers who hated God had understood his purpose, would they have ever crucified Jesus? Why wouldn't they? Because <coughs> his kingdom was going to dominate all kingdoms. And the crucifixion was the first step in that process. In, in his exaltation. Satan was behind crucifying Jesus. If he'd only realized what he was about to what he was doing. That was the worst step Satan could have ever have taken. I mean, it's just amazing. He didn't know. He didn't understand. He hadn't figured it all out. And, 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 and that's what happens with these nations. They come up against God's people, and, and, and the now looks terrible, and then suddenly all the tables are turned, and, and now we find out, oh, God wanted them to come together easier to knock them out when they're all together. You know, so it, it backfires against them. It, it's always cool to see, you know, God doing things like that. You know, and, and it's, it's neat to see that even in bad times, we think, where's God? What's God doing? Oh, he's there. You know, and, and, and he's working it all according to his plan, you know, we just haven't realized what's going on yet. You know, you remember how uh, when Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, they said, and we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And they, well, yeah. And this was the means he was going to do it. They didn't realize this was actually con- contributing to that very purpose. So, God knows it's all working according to his plan. Even the present distress is leading toward the glorious future. I may have said too much at once there to get my point across, but you can ask questions or make comments if you want to. Anything you want to say through it? Yeah, Shane. It's funny to see you. Satan tries to hard to beat the Lord, but he never can. And just the idea is Satan can never win, so it seems like fruitless to try. He tries and left. I think a lot of times it's funny because we... We turn our lives over to Satan like we're going to have the final victory. You know, it's like it's like, like Satan's going to win the little we recognize and the Lord's going to win in the end, so why are we giving our lives to the loser? Um, my dad told a story about a guy that we know that he's a truck and he's at a truck stop right now, I'm sure I get this wrong sometime later. Uh, I got a general idea, but uh, he was at this truck stop and uh, met this other trucker and he had this necklace and he asked him about his necklace. And, he said, well, I, I worship the devil, I worship Satan. So this is my show that he was a Satan worshiper. And he said, you don't, you don't tell me anything, I know what you're going to say. I know you're a Christian, I know what you're going to say. And don't, uh, you don't even say anything. And he, the guy kind of thought about saying, okay, I just want to say one thing. My God kicks your God out of heaven. So why are we giving someone that is the one to lose? And, and, and I think through that what we really need to admire is the Lord. Think of His greatness and His power. And even when things look bleak, He's got His plan and it's working. Other comments and questions? Okay, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. <coughs> 